How can someone move on from tragedy when there are so many questions left unanswered? When all you have are victims and a few tantalizing clues, how can you get closure? Without clarity, mystery builds, and eventually, the killer becomes famous. Then we're stuck in the game of it all, the Zodiac's game. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is too busy and sleepy to imagine the energy it would take to not only kill a bunch of people, but to write a whole lot of letters and ciphers and codes and whatnot. So much work. This week, we'll delve into one of the most notorious cases this country has ever seen. After murdering several people, the killer communicated with law enforcement and the public through local newspapers. Police, criminal experts, amateur crime solvers, and web sleuths spent countless hours trying to figure out who he was. But here we are, six decades later, and the case is still cold. At this point, you probably already know the story of the Zodiac Killer. It is true crime 101. I don't like to dwell on gruesome details, but I'll go over the story for those of you in the back who might not have been paying attention. On December 20th, 1968, 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen and 17-year-old David Faraday were on a first date. Parked at a makeout spot on Lake Herman Road in Venezia, California, about 40 minutes north of San Francisco, when they were shot and killed. A newspaper report said they'd only been parked for a few minutes when they were attacked, though how the reporter could have possibly known that, I have no idea. Betty Lou was shot five times as she tried to run away. David was shot just once. A little more than six months later, just after midnight on July 5th, 1969, and less than four miles away, another young couple was shot in their car in Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, California. 22-year-old Darlene Farron left behind a husband and baby while her companion in the car that night, 19-year-old Mike McGough, improbably survived the attack despite being shot multiple times. Less than an hour after the attack, police in Vallejo received a phone call. The caller spoke in a low, monotone voice and said, I want to report a murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. When the call was traced, they found it had been placed just blocks from the station. I don't know what police did after getting that call. What could they have done? Darlene and Mike had already been found by what the police report identified as three young hippie types, which I can only assume meant they were wearing headbands, love beads, and bell bottoms, and said things like, far out, man. At any rate, the phone call was a tantalizing breadcrumb leading to exactly nowhere. It is impossible to know why the killer made that call. One would like to think his conscience was starting to weigh on him. Mike McGough reported that while he and Darlene were parked, a car pulled into the lot and immediately left. He said it was the same car that came back a few minutes later from which the shooter emerged. For some reason, it makes me feel better to imagine that the killer was fighting his urges. I don't know why that makes me feel better. 
It didn't end up stopping him. Is that weird? That I'm comforted by the idea that maybe this guy had human emotions somewhere? Or should that make it worse? If he wasn't a 100% monster, does that mean that any of us are capable of this kind of thing? And really, who the hell knows why he left and came back? Or why he made that call? Anyway. Apparently, the phone call didn't scratch whatever was itching this guy because a few weeks later, by late July, he had sent a letter to the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. All three letters were handwritten in nearly identical handwriting, and all three papers published the letter on August 1st, 1969. The letter read, Dear Editor, This is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. The author of the letter went on to state those facts and ended with this warning. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry 1st of Aug 69... I will go on a kill rampage Friday night. I will cross around all weekend, killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. The letter was signed with a circle with a cross through it, and the author also included a bunch of hand-drawn symbols, which he explained formed a coded message that would reveal his identity. The coded message was cracked within a week by a woman named Betty Harden and her husband David. Their translation read, and we're going to paraphrase words that were misspelled because, yes, he managed to misspell a lot of things, even in code. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and all the I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name, because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. On August 4th, the examiner received another letter, presumably from the same author. This time, he opened the letter with, This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm no criminal psychologist, but I've seen enough movies to know that once the killer has a nickname, all bets are off. Usually the name is given to the killer by the media, like with the Green River Killer or the Boston Strangler. They're cemented into community life for a time, like an incoming storm to prepare for and fear, instead of just a person on the loose who can be caught. In theory. If I had been around Northern California in 1969, this letter would have been enough to send me packing. This guy is giving himself a nickname? That can't be a good sign. And it wasn't. Less than two months later, the so-called Zodiac struck again. This time, in broad daylight, he attacked another young couple on the shore of Lake Berryessa in Napa County. 
22-year-old Cecilia Shepard and 20-year-old Brian Hartnell were relaxing by the lake when a man approached them wearing a black hood adorned with the same circle and cross symbol featured in the Zodiac's letters. He bound the couple with clothesline, told them he was going to rob them and leave, but then attacked them with a 12-inch knife. After stabbing them both, he drew the circle with the cross through it on the door of Brian's car, along with the dates of the two previous murders, and then added, as if keeping a tally, September 27, 69, 6.30 by knife, in black marker, and then, once again, called the police to report what he had done. I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. The dispatcher asked his location, and he only replied, I'm the one who did it. Cecilia fell into a coma and died two days later. Brian survived. Brian surviving the attack could have meant the end for the Zodiac, except that he had chosen that time to wear a hood. Again, who knows why he made that decision? Maybe it was because he wanted to be able to attack during the day and knew his chances of being identified would be higher than at night. Maybe it was because he chose to use a knife that time instead of a gun so he would have to get closer to his victims. Maybe it was because a prior victim had survived his attack. Maybe he had planned to confront his victims ahead of time and wore the hood for theatrics as an extra scare tactic. I hate to say it, but one would think that someone like this might be a little more careful not to leave two of his six victims alive. Then again, I don't know what murdering people does to the nervous system. It's possible he attacked and then got struck by a healthy dose of his own fear endorphins and got the hell out of there before finishing the job. I don't know, and frankly, I'm glad I don't. I have enough problems not to have to deal with empathizing with a psycho. Just about two weeks later, on the evening of October 11th, 1969, witnesses called police to report that a cab driver had been shot in his cab in the wealthy San Francisco neighborhood of Presidio Heights. The cab driver, 29-year-old Paul Stein, didn't survive. Witnesses described the killer as a white male, 25 to 30 years old, wearing glasses and a crew cut. And despite that description, a dispatcher told police the shooter was black. Large sigh. For so many reasons. Just the largest of sighs. For all we know, while police were running around looking for a black man, the Zodiac was standing right in front of them. Of course, police didn't know they were looking for the same man who had committed the three Lovers Lane killings. This murder, after all, didn't fit that pattern at all. Police figured it was a standard robbery until two days later when the San Francisco Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. According to the website Zodiac Killer Facts, quote, the letter went on to chastise police for failing to capture him near the scene, end quote, and then ended with a truly terrifying threat. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. 
The letter was published on October 17th, and panic ensued across San Francisco, with parents keeping their children home or driving them to school themselves. Helicopters patrolled the skies and curfews were put into effect. The whole mood changed as people, naturally, didn't know what horror they might expect next. And then, after whipping all of Northern California into an absolute panic, it stopped. As far as the official record goes, Paul Stein was the Zodiac's final victim. No more killings, no children being picked off as they came bouncing out of a school bus, no more letters, no more Zodiac. Of course, no one knew that was the end, and the damage had already been done, with five people dead and a city terrorized. The hunt was on for the Zodiac Killer. The late 60s and 70s in California was a wild time, right on the heels of the so-called Summer of Love of 1967, whose West Coast heart was in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, came the horror that was Charles Manson and his cult of followers, the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Killer, the Golden State Killer, and the Doodler. And that was just in California. Oddly enough, the Zodiac was middling compared to these other killers. When I mentioned the Zodiac to my partner, he said, oh yeah, he terrorized San Francisco for like decades. To be fair, my husband is not a true crime fanatic, but still, the truth is that the Zodiac's reign of terror was actually less than a year. And while five people murdered is five people too many, it's still far fewer than the other notorious serial killers could claim. And yet, there are dozens of books, movies, and podcasts devoted to him. What captured the country's attention were the theatrics, the calls and letters, the demands to be published in the paper, the symbols, the taunting. The killer seemed so close and yet just out of reach. At the end of an era of optimism and for a nation at war and disillusioned by the failure of their ideals, where the previously pervasive sense of community and the American dream of the 50s and 60s was breathing its last breath, the Zodiac Killer embodied the fear of the unknown, the invisible threat, the mistrust of our neighbors, the belief that anyone could be a monster, the killer on the road. No one was safe. The never-ending chase certainly wasn't for a lack of suspects. According to San Francisco homicide inspector Gianrico Perucci, there were thousands. In an interview Perucci gave to the San Francisco Chronicle in 2018, he said, He's our Jack the Ripper. It's been 50 years, and all we have is two sketches of a white male with glasses. Very frustrating. So, people are left to speculate. And they still are. And if there's one thing we humans are good at, it's coming up with all sorts of cockamamie theories. Several people have now claimed the Zodiac was their father. And who could miss the torrent of believers and memes alike suspecting Texas Senator Ted Cruz? Listen, Ted Cruz is a lot of things. But one thing he is most decidedly not is a killer who started killing two years before he was even born. Of all the suspects, probably the most likely was a man named Arthur Lee Allen. And it's Allen we'll focus on for the rest of this episode because, without spoiling anything, there's a lot to cover. Allen was born in 1933 and raised in Vallejo, California, the same town in which the Zodiac would later attack Darlene Farron and Mike McGough. 
He graduated with a B.A. in elementary education from Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, which happens to be one of my favorite towns in the U.S. Allen then joined the Navy in 1957. He was arrested in June of 58 for disturbing the peace while fighting with an acquaintance named Ralph Spinelli, and the charges were dropped. He was dishonorably discharged from the Navy in December of that year, a full six months after his arrest. According to author Robert Graysmith in his book Zodiac Unmasked, a woman who says her mother used to date Alan platonically, whatever that means, claimed the discharge was a result of the arrest. Why it took the Navy six months to discharge him, I don't know. Fun fact about me, I have no idea how the military works. In the years following his discharge from the Navy, Allen worked in several elementary schools as well as a psychiatric technician at Atascadero State Hospital. In 1963, Allen was fired from Travis Elementary on the Travis Air Force Base for having a loaded weapon in his car, which is confusing because one would imagine there were lots of loaded weapons on a military base. Again, I don't understand how the military works. Then, in 1968, he was fired from Valley Springs Elementary in Valley Springs for molesting a student. He wasn't arrested for molesting a student, just fired. And while that effectively ended his teaching career, it didn't prevent him from becoming a part-time janitor at Elmer Cave Elementary School, which is where Detective Sergeant John Lynch caught up with him on October 6, 1969, a little over a week after the murders at Lake Berryessa. Detective Lynch's report makes no mention of how Allen got on his radar in the first place, but there he was, on the radar, and Lynch went up for a visit to see what he could glean from Allen. Lynch asked Allen where he was on the evening of September 27th when Cecilia Shepard was murdered and Brian Hartnell was left for dead on the shore of Lake Berryessa. Allen claimed he had been skin-diving on the 26th which I had to Google and is not as creepy as it sounds. It's just diving without a wetsuit and a scuba tank. And spent the night at Salt Point Ranch, about 74 miles northwest of San Francisco. He claimed to have returned home to Vallejo on the morning of the 27th and couldn't remember whether his parents, who he lived with, were home or not that day. Apparently, Detective Lynch was like, okie dokie, and left. But here's the thing, and you probably picked up on this. Allen gave an alibi for September 26th, not the 27th. And you want to know what's in between Salt Point Ranch and Vallejo? Lake Berryessa. So while his alibi was weak, to say the least, and couldn't be corroborated by anyone, Allen was now on police's radar, but no one apparently bothered to bring him in for further questioning. Then again, we have no idea how police became aware of him as a possible suspect in the first place. So. A whole two years went by with no one bothering to follow up with Allen, when in July of 1971, civilian Santo Paul Panzarella called the Manhattan Beach Police Department in Southern California with some disturbing information. Panzarella and his business partner, Dennis Cheney, had gone to school with Allen's brother, and Cheney told police he used to go hunting with Allen. Cheney claimed that on one hunting trip, Allen asked him if he'd ever thought about hunting people. Allen, Cheney said, went on to describe how he would target people on lovers' lanes and shoot them. He said the police would have a hard time investigating because there would be no motive. That he would send notes to the police to taunt them and send them in the wrong direction 
and that he would sign the notes Zodiac. He also said Allen talked of shooting the tires out of school buses and, quote, picking off the little darlings as they came bouncing off the bus, end quote. The police must have been like, um, why did you wait a whole two years to come to us with this? Because Cheney's excuse was that he'd only just recently read an article about the Zodiac killings and it spurred his memory. I mean, okay. Wasting no time, after wasting two years of time, police followed up on this lead and began digging into Allen's past. What they found was disturbing, to say the least. Apparently, Allen's dismissal from his elementary school job for molesting students was not the only time he'd been caught being sexually inappropriate with children. The owner of a service station where Allen had worked told police that Allen had taken his daughter on a boat without the man's permission and, quote, made improper advances toward the girl. I don't know if the man fired Allen for it, but I do know he didn't bother telling police about it. Ted Kidder, head of the Greater Vallejo Recreation Department, where Allen worked as a lifeguard and trampoline instructor, God help us, in the mid-60s, received multiple complaints about Allen from parents regarding, quote, various acts toward their children. And again, no one thought to tell police about this behavior. What the fuck was going on in Northern California in the 1960s that people were just like, meh, what can you do when confronted with grown men molesting children? Don't answer that. It's rhetorical. Armed with this new information, police dropped in on Allen at his job at an oil refinery for a second interview. Allen repeated his alibi about skin diving, but this time added that he'd met a couple while there who could ostensibly corroborate his story, but whether he produced their names, I don't know. Oh, and there was his neighbor who saw him get home around four, but gee whiz, wouldn't you know, the neighbor died a week later. It was during this interview that police noticed Allen's watch, which was a Zodiac. And then, out of nowhere, Allen says... The two knives I had in my car with blood on them. The blood came from a chicken I had killed. Police were like, uh, come again, Bob? The two what now were from what now? It was a super odd statement to volunteer without prompting. Police had no idea what knives he was talking about. Was this a weird slip-up? Allen had to have known the police didn't know about the knives. No one had seen them or asked him about them. No one had confiscated them. Did he think someone else might have seen them and told the police? Even so, why did he offer this up without being asked? Wouldn't it have been smarter to wait for the police to ask him about the knives before being like, uh, nothing to see here, folks? Or was he toying with police? As if that wasn't strange enough, Allen then casually mentioned to police he happened to have been in Southern California around the time that a woman named Cherry Jo Bates was murdered in Riverside, about an hour west of Los Angeles. The Zodiac was a suspect in Bates' murder. Before the interview was over, Allen also decided it was important to tell police he liked the book The Most Dangerous Game in high school. The Most Dangerous Game is, in a nutshell, about hunting humans, which, again, is a super bizarre thing to share with a bunch of cops who are questioning you in connection to murder. Like, why bring it up? What are you doing, Bob? 
This doesn't seem like the stealth of the Zodiac, or is confusing the hell out of everyone part of the stealth. After this wackadoodle interview, police got a warrant to search Alan's trailer in Santa Rosa. They didn't find anything particularly incriminating, though one might argue that a freezer full of dead squirrels isn't the best look. Alan claimed he had permission from the state to have the dead squirrels for experimenting as he studied to become a biologist, though where, I don't know. The report I read mentioned various, quote, sexually oriented materials, including a large dildo. But that seems irrelevant to me. If a dildo is evidence of criminal activity, I'm in big trouble. Investigators then asked Alan to copy the Zodiac letters with both his left and right hands, but a handwriting expert said it wasn't a match. To make matters worse for investigators, Alan's fingerprint did not match the one print they'd been able to lift from the cab of Paul Stein. Though Lord knows, a cab is probably covered in hundreds of fingerprints, so how they might have determined that that one fingerprint belonged to the killer, I don't know. Something you may not know about me, I'm not a forensics expert. Shocking. I know. I apologize. And so, despite the fact that Alan was like, here's my Zodiac watch that has the same symbol that was on the letters, and I have no alibi, and oh, also pay no attention to those bloody knives I'm drawing your attention to, also want to see my collection of frozen dead squirrels? Police didn't have enough to arrest him for the Zodiac killings. Three years went by with nary a peep from the Zodiac, nor any updates from police with leads or possible suspects, when on January 29, 1974, a little more than two years after police searched Allen's home, more than five years after Zodiac's last confirmed victim was murdered, another letter showed up at the SF Chronicle. The letter praised the film The Exorcist as, quote, the best satirical comedy he'd ever seen, which, I mean to each their own, I guess, and stated, quote, me, 37, SFPD, zero. Now, Lord knows I'm just a dummy with a keyboard, but it seems to me that if Alan was the Zodiac, it might make sense that he went on a huge spree of random murders without drawing attention to them, once he knew police were on to him. It's all well and good to taunt police when they have no idea who you are, but once they've discovered your freezer full of rodents, it's probably wise to cool off a little. Of course, we all know psychopathic murderers have a hard time cooling off from murdering, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if he kept at that but resisted the urge to write to newspapers until he couldn't stand it anymore. If there's one thing serial killers seem to love almost as much as killing, it's attention. And then, in September of 1974, Alan was arrested and sent to prison for molesting a young boy. While in prison, Alan was administered a lie detector test about his suspected involvement in the Zodiac murders. He apparently passed with flying colors, which doesn't mean much because we all know lie detector tests are garbage, and if there's one thing sociopaths are really good at, it's not getting worked up over anything. It's kind of their thing. Alan was released in August of 77 and went back to live in his mother's basement. And I'm going to go ahead and give that a big old grade of not today, Bob. I don't care who you are. You could be Mother Teresa. But once you've molested children, you're not staying in my basement. Not today, not never. 
In April of 1978, the Chronicle received one last letter, but this one was different in tone and handwriting, and it turned out Detective David Tashi, one of the lead investigators on the Zodiac case, wrote the letter himself, which is just like, what, dude? Why? He never gave a satisfactory reason as to why he did it. And then, Alan's story just kind of fades off for more than a decade. No more killings attributed to him, no more letters, no news until 1990 when a career criminal named Ralph Spinelli, not the Ralph Spinelli from earlier who Alan fought in the Navy, which is bonkers, how many Ralph Spinellis have you ever met, was facing many years in prison and offered in exchange for a lighter sentence to reveal the true identity of the Zodiac Killer. Spinelli told police that the day before Paul Stein was murdered in his cab, Arthur Lee Allen told Spinelli he was planning on killing a cab driver in San Francisco. Two weeks later, police once again searched Allen's home in his mother's basement and found pipe bombs, materials for bombs, and firearms, but once again, nothing to definitively link him to the Zodiac killings. Which begs the question, isn't having bombs, like, illegal? Couldn't he have been arrested for that? Big shrug, I guess. Despite finding nothing definitive, Allen was now finally the prime suspect in the Zodiac murders and was named in newspapers in May of 91 as such. And then, three months after that, and a full 22 years after being attacked at Blue Rock Springs Park, Mike McGough, one of the two survivors of the Zodiac attacks, picked Allen out of a photo lineup. But here's the thing. 22 years is an awful long time, and unless McGough had a photographic memory, which I don't think he did, you can't count that ID for much. And no one did. Even if police could have been more confident about McGough's ID of Allen, it wouldn't have mattered. All the evidence against Allen was circumstantial and probably wouldn't have held up in court. Of course, many a person has been put away for far less, but prosecutors would have had an uphill climb. The point is moot, anyway, because a year later, on October 26, 1992, Arthur Lee Allen died of a heart attack. Most people think Allen was the Zodiac, and of course, we will never know. But author Richard Graysmith, who worked at the Chronicle during the killings and wrote two books about the Zodiac, as well as Detective Tashi, whose reputation was somewhat tarnished by his fakakta decision to fake a letter from the Zodiac, never wavered in their belief that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac. Turns out genetic testing of the letters has pretty much ruled Allen out, though. Isn't that a pain in the ass? It's not like there aren't other suspects. One quote put the number of suspects in the beginning of the investigation at a whopping 2,500. That number obviously got whittled down over the years as suspects were ruled out, but other suspects are added to the list all the time, as all kinds of people come out of the woodwork claiming to know who the killer really was. It was their father, or stepfather, with whom, not for nothing, they had a bone to pick, or a mild-mannered house painter who was really a criminal mastermind in charge of a network of murderers, or a merchant marine who had made a confidential confession to an attorney in the early 70s, or a drifter who was part of the Manson family, or a wealthy and successful sports car dealer, or an editor of a counterculture newspaper, or a movie projectionist. The list is very long. And that long and ever-growing, ever-changing list tells us that the Zodiac Killer could be anyone at all.
Next time on Strange and Unexplained, a legend more than a hundred years old whose origins are dubious, but whose infamy lives on to this day, the Bell Witch of Tennessee. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 